Let's go to the Lord in prayer. What a joy it is to be in your house this day, Father. To be able to sing praises unto your name. To know that if we are your child, that we have fellowship and worship with you. How we pray, Father, that we would understand the great salvation that we have. That you have forgiven us because of the work of Christ. We know that our debt has been paid and that we have received the righteousness that we never could have earned. And we give you praise and honor and glory for such a wonderful truth. We pray, Father, that as we continue to meditate upon these things this morning, that you would give us understanding and insight into your word. As we look at this very difficult phrase that Jesus gives us, to love our enemies, we pray, Father, that you would give us the ability and give us the reason why, so that we might seek to bring honor and glory to your name. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own strength and that you have not left us in our own ignorance, but you have given us power from above and the very words of God. We thank you, Father, for this sermon that Jesus delivered 2,000 years ago, and we pray that you would continue to teach us as we study it and that we would benefit as we grow in grace and as we seek to persevere in the faith, knowing, Father, that you have put your Spirit in us so that we might be able to be more like Christ. We pray, Father, that you would work in this place this day. Bring conviction of sin. Bring understanding of your Word. Bring confession and bring renewal in our lives so that we might be committed to the truth and live out the truth each and every day of our life. We pray, Father, that you would be with those unable to be with us this day. You know their reasons and their needs, and we pray that you minister to them. Those we think, of, Father, that may need your healing hand upon their bodies, we pray that you would restore their health quickly. We pray for those, Father, who would be in sorrow. We pray that you would comfort them as only you can. We pray for those, Father, that would not be here due to lack of concern for their own spiritual needs and that you would work in their lives so that they might join us quickly. We pray, Father, that you would bring many into your kingdom throughout this world this day as the gospel is proclaimed in various places so that your kingdom might continue to grow. And we pray, thank you, Father, for the promise that you have given us that you will build your church and that you will flood the nations with the gospel. We thank you that we can be a part of that. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for his sake and glory. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we will be reading verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, beginning with verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if we love those who, you, who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Last week, I mentioned to you the difficulty of the passage that we looked at. We are commanded by Jesus to turn the other cheek if someone slaps us. And we saw how difficult that is. That only by the supernatural power that is in us, by the grace of God, are we able to do such. Now here, as we come to this passage, we see that no doubt this command that Jesus gives us is even more difficult than the one that we looked at last week. Now, no doubt Jesus demonstrated how to keep each of God's commandments as He lived here on earth. We know that He displayed His love for His enemies throughout His entire ministry. I mean, here's one that had all the power possessed that the Father had given him that he could have used that power to bring an end to his enemies. But instead of bringing an end to his enemies, he loved his enemies. Even as he hung there on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And what Jesus commands us to do goes against our normal feelings. I mean, if you know that someone hates you, the most natural thing, speaking humanly, is to respond back how? With hate, right? I mean, if they hate me, then why not I hate them? But since the Holy Spirit lives in us who are Christians, then we have that supernatural power to do what Jesus commands us here. Of course, if you do not look to Christ for that power, then you fail. We all have heard that unbiblical saying, if it feels good, do it. That was a saying I know, um, especially during the 70s. If it feels good, do it. Well, believing this, of course, can lead you, first of all, down the wrong path and get you in very serious trouble. As I mentioned last week, if someone slaps you, what feels best? To turn the other cheek? Let him slap you on the other cheek? No. What feels best is to draw back your fist and punch him in the nose, right? Now, of course, it may feel best temporarily after you do it. A little bit later, it might not feel best. And, of course, it depends on how big that individual is that you punched in the nose. So we see that Jesus is not talking about how you feel. He's not telling us that it feels good to do these things he's talking about. He's talking about doing that which pleases his heavenly Father. That which He did 
We know that He pleased His Heavenly Father in every single aspect of His life. And He's teaching Christians that we, you and me, have a higher calling. We have a higher calling than those who were lost in this world. And that higher calling involves loving your enemies. Now first I want to lay down a foundation for these verses that we will look at. Uh, We're not going to deal with all of them today. We will continue to look at them next week. I know you did not want an hour and a half sermon, so therefore I decided to cut it into two sermons. But I want to lay down the foundation which really reveals to us the difficulty of doing what Christ commands us to do. I mean, once we really understand what our real problem is, then we're able to deal with it in a biblical way. One of the main problems that we have in dealing with others is not the others. It's what? It's self. Dealing with self. Martin Martin Lloyd-Jones points out that self was responsible for the fall. The devil, wise and subtle, came because he knew the power of self. So when he came to Adam and Eve, what did he do? His question addressed self. More or less, he said, God is not being fair to you two. God is keeping something from you. Therefore, you have a legitimate grudge. You have a real grievance against God. So he put that into their mind. And as they sit there and listen to him and meditate upon that, what happened? They agreed with him. And the fall ensued. I mean, why is there no peace among the nations? Why is China and Taiwan at odds? Why is Russia and the Ukraine at odds? Why is Israel and Palestine and the United States and Afghanistan and whatever countries we deal, why are all these countries at odds with one another? Because people have no peace. There's no peace among the nations. Because they are selfish, right? We want what we rightfully want. What we think is rightfully ours. So the real problem is self. Self Self-rebellion against God. And what we see in life is that man puts himself on the throne instead of God. Now, if man puts himself on the throne instead of God, what does he have? He has an idol. Self is his idol. And what does the Scripture teach us about that, idols? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, self, if it's a god, if it's an idol, then therefore you're putting self before God, and you have an idol in your life. And that idol separates us from God. Self says what? It's all about me. It's what I want. It's what I want to do. 
And therefore, unhappiness is ultimately due to this. Unhappiness is separated, separation from God, separation from His truth, separation from communing with the living God. When you are separated from God and when you are separated from His truth, you search for happiness in all the wrong places. I mean, we see it. People turn to sex, drugs, alcohol, money, activities, even work and education. And I could go on and on and on. They're trying to find happiness in something, some activity, something that they think will give them joy. But it never brings joy that is lasting. And eventually it leads to devastation and eternal separation from God. I mean, look around the world. We see it everywhere. The majority of people are consumed with self, consumed with pleasing themselves. But a person who has real communion with the living God through Jesus Christ, His Son, is filled with joy in his life. And therefore, no matter what comes into his life, he still has joy because he has died to self. No longer I live, as Paul says, but Christ lives in me, through me. And we say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, that's why Paul and Silas, remember they were put in that dungeon, that jail, that prison. It's not like our prisons in jail today. It was not luxury in any matter. It was a terrible situation. And what did they do? Did they sit there and moan and groan and say, God, why in the world did you put me in this stinking place? What did they do? They sang praises to God. How in the world could they sing praises to God in such a place as that? Because they had everlasting joy. Because they were in Christ. Why did the reformer John Husk sing as he was tied to the stake and burned at the stake? Because he knew where he was about to go. He knew that he was in Christ and he was about to meet Christ face to face. Why is it that Christians communing with God can be happy with all hell breaking loose around them? Many saints in history repeat the words of Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. They experience the words of Paul as sorrow yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing yet possessing all things. So ultimately... The cause of any misery, the cause of any lack of joy is due to being separated from God. Not having real communion grace with the living Savior. And the main cause of being separated from God is self. So if you're unhappy... It means that in some way or another, you are looking to yourself. And you're thinking about self. 
When instead you should be looking to Christ and longing for communion with God, delighting in Him. See, Scripture teaches that man was meant to live entirely for the glory of God. That's why He created us. The chief end of man is to love God and to live for God and delight in God. And if you're not communing with God, if you're not delighting in Him, if you're not bringing glory to Him, then there is no joy. He created us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to love self. And any desire to glorify self and protect our own self-interest is sin. Did you hear that? Any desire to glorify self and protect our own self-interest is sin. Why? Because if I'm looking at self instead of God and His honor and His glory, then I have that idol self. And I mean putting another God before the living God. And God condemns idols. So Jesus calls us to be delivered from a self-centered life. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.16, Be ye holy, even as I am holy. So holiness delivers us from self-centeredness. For if we speak about our attitude toward self, we need to understand that God desires for us to be separated from this world. God desires for us to have the right attitude about self and the right attitude about Him. We must understand that it doesn't mean that I'm going to do certain things and I'm not going to do other things. But it means that we look at self in terms of our relationship with God. And if we have the right relationship with God, then these other things will naturally come about in our life. I must realize that the essence of holiness is that I've died completely to self that has caused me so much trouble, that has caused me so much sin in my life. And being holy is being like Christ and having the attitude of Christ. So therefore, when the Holy Spirit lives in me, then therefore, I have been set apart to holiness. So if I have the attitude of Christ, then I'm able to do that which Christ commands me to do. And here, Christ commands me and Christ commands you, if you're in Him, to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Now with that as our foundation, I want us to move forward. And secondly, ask the question, what does Jesus mean when He says, love your enemies? I mean, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again addresses 
a serious issue that has been raised. He says, for the sixth time, if you go back and look at the different times he said this, he points out very clearly there in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. So again, he's reading, you have heard. Now, what is he referring to by now? Since it's the sixth time, you ought to know. He's referring to the teaching of the religious leaders, the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, what they had taught the people. They had taught the people that they should love their neighbor and hate their enemy. So what is Jesus doing? He's correcting their teachings, as we've seen before. He's correcting the abuse of Scripture and the perversion of Scripture and their theological heresy that they had caused and had led the people astray. He taught that the Scripture is both powerful and vital in cultivating an authentic relationship with God. And that's what they needed to hear. They needed to understand that they had to have a relationship with the living God through the Son. Now, it's sad that even in our day-to-day, people continue to misrepresent such passages as this and cause people to be left in ignorance as well as disobedience. Most of the time, it's due to a failure to study the Scriptures correctly, to spend time in the Scripture. It's sad that many pastors today have become CEOs of the church and they don't even have time to study Scripture. I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of these pastors simply get sermons from other pastors and use them word for word. Now, I admit, I get a lot of information from other sermons. I read sermons, I listen to sermons, I, I look for other information that I can use. I go to commentaries. Commentaries, most of them are just sermons. But to go and simply use word for word from another person who preached a sermon without telling the congregation. Matter of fact, I remember years ago, a preacher friend of mine got up and he said, I'm about to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm talking about to get up and preach a sermon as if it's your sermon, but it's someone else's sermon. That's wrong. They need to be in their study. They need to be studying the Word of God and wrestling with the Word of God so that they can preach the Word of God. And I must admit, this week I wrestled with this passage. I'm still wrestling with this passage, to tell you the truth. And I'm going to wrestle with it for another week because next week we will continue. It's a difficult passage. But you must wrestle with such passages as this so that you might dig and be able to find the truth. Now, I put in the order of worship today. How you need to get an order of worship, by the way. Get an order of worship. Read on the back of it, and it shows five different commentaries, short commentaries, pertaining to this passage. And if you'll notice, there's some similarities, but most of them are different. And I'm showing you there what I'm wrestling with. If one person says this over here and another person says this over here, you have to wrestle with that. And you go back again and again to Scripture to try to find out what is the right conclusion. This is a weighty passage. And we must realize that it doesn't stand alone. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. It is connected to the previous verses as well as the following verses. 
Scripture must always be left in its context. Be careful with those people who are always using one verse to try to teach some doctrine. You must have a wide range of truth in teaching doctrine. The error that most people make concerning these verses is that they do not define love and neighbor as it should be defined. Now, most of them speak about benevolent love. And we are to have a benevolent love for our fellow man, even our enemies. And there's something commendable in our enemies. And therefore, we're to have goodwill toward them. Now, that which is commendable in them is what? What? It is the stamp of God. God created them. And their being, who they are, as far as that aspect of God putting His image upon them, is that which we love. Does that make sense? I mean, we don't love what they do. We don't love how they act. We don't love them as sinners. We love them because we see God in them. Because God created them and we are to have goodwill toward them. Now, no doubt that the love that we show our enemies is not the same love that we show our family or our wife or our fellow Christian brother. There's two different kinds of love. Now, in the Greek, there's eight different words for love. In the Bible, there are four of those words used. There Eros, which is that central, that, that romantic. There's Storch, which is a family. There's Philea, and we get, you know, Philadelphia, brotherly love. And there's Agape, which is God's unconditional love. Now, God uses the word, Jesus uses the word here, Agape. We are to have an unconditional love for our enemies. Now, no doubt, the love that Jesus speaks here comes from the heart. A changed heart. And only a Christian can have that love, agape love. Paul says in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law. So only a Christian can fulfill the law because he has a new heart. He's been changed and he has that love in him. And because of the love that has been given to him, because of the love to God, then we have a love that is required for our fellow man. So real obedience is nothing more or nothing less than exercise of love in the way that God has commanded us. Now, strictly speaking, there's no ground for distinction commonly made as internal and external obedience. I mean, some people will try to say, well, there's external obedience. Well, if external obedience does not come from internal obedience, then it is useless. Our internal obedience is exercising the love that we have for God, and it displays itself in our external Obedience. So if our love doesn't proceed from a holy 
affection from God, then it is not a love that is biblical. It's, it's worthless. It's what Jesus called dead works, or James called it dead works, and Jesus makes reference to it often as dead works. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the scribes did. That's what the Sadducees did. They had dead works. Why were their works called dead? Because it didn't come from the heart. It didn't come from a love for God. But we see that God loves sinners because of Himself. See? It's not because of them. It's because of Himself. Himself, which He created. And He's loving that that is in Him, them, that reminds Him of Himself. And we are to love others because of who God is. And the image that is imprinted upon them. Now I remind you, That Jesus was concerned with refuting and rejecting the deadly error of the religious teachers of his day. See, that God loves sinners because he created them. Now, they had perverted the scriptures with the phrase, hate your enemy. You can't find it in scripture. Matter of fact, we read just a moment ago our Old Testament reading, and what did it say? It shows us that they had twisted and perverted the Scriptures, and it was the rabbinical invention, simply and pure. Listen to what, again, to what um, Leviticus 19, 17 and 18 says. You shall not Hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take advengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So they had gone completely opposite to what the scriptures had said. The Pharisees restricted the word neighbor to friend, relatives, those who were Jews. Now, the Old Testament neighbor had a twofold meaning, both a wide and a very general meaning, as well as narrow and specific. First of all, anyone who they came in contact with having a respect for their fellow man, the scriptures that emphasized. And in this sense, even a stranger was equal to being a neighbor. We see that uh, in the Ten Commandments, right? Even if the stranger is in your courts, welcome him in. So you treat him like a brother. So all people were proper objects of God's law, according to the Old Testament, because God had created them and stamped His image on them. But there also was a narrow view, being restricted to those who were friendly toward you. Those who also had been brought into the covenant. Those you treated special because they were your neighbors in a special way. So the command to love their neighbor properly understood, urged them to love all mankind due to God's love. But there are exceptions and 
next week I'm going to talk about those exceptions. I'm not going to talk about them this week. That way, hopefully, you'll say, hey, I want to know what those exceptions are. Let me uh, read a couple of verses that indicate to us God's love or our love for our neighbor. Uh, Exodus 23, 4 and 5. But if you meet your enemies, ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one you who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So we see here how you're to treat your enemy, he says. And then in Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, but do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Now that's difficult, isn't it? I mean, a lot of times when our enemies make a mistake and they fall flat on their face, we rejoice, don't we? Well, here it tells us not to. Then it goes on, it says, Lest the Lord see it and it displease him. And he turns away his wrath from him. And then in verse 21 of chapter 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So clearly the Old Testament teaching, we could read other verses, tells us how we are to treat our enemy. But yet the Pharisees and the scribes had perverted it and taught wrongly, and even to the extreme, to hate your enemy. So the Jews believed this mandate that the religious leaders had given, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And of course, they applied it especially to the Gentiles and the Samaritans, who they saw as being outside their camp. So we see that the religious leaders had again twisted God's commandment and Jesus is setting things straight. This is also revealed in Luke chapter 10. Remember the lawyer, when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit life? And what did Jesus tell him? He told him to keep the commandments. And he professed that he had kept the commandments. And then we see that Jesus in talking to him, told him not only to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength, but love his neighbor as himself. And remember the reply from the lawyer? Who is my neighbor? Wonderful opportunity for Jesus to teach him who his neighbor was. Remember? Remember the story, children? Who was his neighbor? He told the story or he told the parable of what? The Good Samaritan. So it gave an opportunity for Jesus to set them straight as far as who the Jews' neighbor was. They hated the Samaritans. And here Jesus is pointing out that this Samaritan did good. This Samaritan helped this man who was a Jew in need, revealing that Jesus had stamped his approval on all human beings. His image carried with it a mandate to live in such a way as to mirror and reflect the character of God. Now, when speaking of God's love, 
That was talking about the neighbor. Remember I said they twisted the understanding neighbor. And also love was twisted. So when we talk about God's love, we must distinguish His love. For there are different kinds of love. This morning as we were coming to church, uh, August spent the night with Brooke Ellen and they both spent the night at our house. And, and I quizzed them a little bit and I began to talk to them a little bit and tell them about this morning's sermon And therefore, I talked to them about the three different kinds of love that God has. I hope on the way home that you do this with your children. So listen very carefully so you can understand the three different kinds of love that God has. So that we might rightly teach them about this love for their enemies. First of all, there is this love of God which is benevolent love. And then there is a love of God which is beneficence. Now, that's an unusual word. Matter of fact, my wife said, now, did you say that word right? I said, well, go to U2 and find it. I went to U2 and found it and made sure I said it right. Uh, I'll spell it for you if you're writing your notes. B-E-N-E-F-I-C-E-N-C-E. And then there's a third kind of love, which is called complacency. Now, when you hear the word complacency, it's not what we think. When we talk about complacency, we think about being a couch potato, right? He's just complacent, you know. He just lay back. That, that's not God. God is not like that. This word complacency talks about his delight, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the reason for these distinctions is to note the different ways in which God loves people, loves mankind. It helps us to know how we are to love our enemies as his children, how we are to imitate This particular love. In which particular love are we to imitate? Now God's love of benevolence is a quality of goodwill. Remember when Jesus was born and the angels were talking to the shepherds and He said, goodwill toward men. See? This is what happened. God had goodwill toward men in sending His Son into the world. It extends to all people without uh, distinction. God is loving in this sense. Even to those who are damned. Why? Because His image is in all men. God's benevolent love is revealed by His beneficence. See, His benevolent love that's in Him has to be revealed. How is it revealed? Well, it's revealed by His beneficence. Now, that means His nature is revealed in action. I may feel affectionate towards someone, but my will, my goodwill, remains unknown, right? See, I can, can, I, can I not feel affectionate towards someone and never show that person that I... Am affectionate to him? Yes. Uh huh. So that's the benevolent. Showing that nature is the benevolence. See? Does that make sense? Is that understanding? When God shows his love, then he is being beneficence. So we have to understand that God displays this. And we often associate it with acts of kindness or acts of charity. I mean, the very word charity is often used, and it's a synonym for love, right? 
So it's an act of kindness, an act of love, uh, beneficence. Listen to what he says there in Luke, I mean in Matthew 5, 45b. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So what is that doing? God is demonstrating his beneficence. He's manifesting his love. How is he doing? Rain, sunshine. On who? On everyone. So therefore we see that God's love, his benevolent love, is displayed in beneficence to everyone. Now, Jesus commands us to display our love in the same way to our enemies. I mean, this love is not a warm, fuzzy, positive feeling, but it's a behavior. It's an action imitating God. In this context, love is more of a verb than a noun. To love our enemies is to be loving toward them. It involves doing good to them. That's what the good Samaritan did to the Jew who had been beaten up. He did good to him. He showed beneficence to the uh, Jew. So therefore, we are to do the same. This is a universal love extending to all human beings. So we say, God loves all mankind. If we're talking about benevolent love, we are correct in saying that. Now remember, before you and I were saved, we were by nature, what? Enemies. Enemies of God, right? And if He had left us in that state, we would have continued to be enemies of God all the way to an everlasting hell. But He didn't leave us in that state. I mean, believe it or not, you were altogether unlovable. You were altogether unworthy. Now this goes back to my foundation, remember? If, that's, if the mindset is that you weren't, oh, now, pastor, I wasn't really that bad. Well, then you're thinking too highly of what? Self. I mean, we were all in that shape, the Scripture says. None sought God. All had turned away from God. There was none good, not even one. So even when we were not thankful to God, He was merciful to us. Even when we had sinned against Him, He never returned evil for evil. See, God's pattern of relating to His people, and get this, God's pattern of relating to His people is the same pattern that you and I are to follow. It's the same pattern that Jesus Himself displayed. And we are called to what? Be imitators of Christ, who is God's incarnate. Now, the third type of love, which is God's love, is this complacency. Now, this love is not universal. Did you hear me? His complacent love is not universal. 
nor is it unconditional, which is the chief difference between this love and the other two loves. Sadly, this particular love, this divine love, is often denied and obscured by a blanket universalism of God's love. Now, what do I mean? Well, again, I go back to the 70s, and there was a big slogan I can remember. God loves you, and so do I. I mean, that was quoted often. God loves you, and so do I. And they were speaking about this love, telling everybody that God loved them in this manner. And to say indiscriminately that God loves some unconditionally without carefully distinguishing the distinct type of divine love is to promote a false sense of security in those who hear it. What I mean. In other words, here's a guy in his sin living like hell and you go up to him and say, well, God loves you. Oh, wow, man. <laughs> I thought I was going to hell, and you're telling me, God, well, I ain't going to hell if God loves me. Is that not what's in their mind? So we have to be very careful. See, God's love of complacency is unique delight and pleasure He has. First of all, in who? You? No. His complacent love, unique delight and pleasure is first of all in His only begotten Son. Jesus Christ, the beloved of the Father. Supremely, He is the Son in whom the Father is well pleased. So that's where his first love is cast. His greatest love, his supreme love is upon his son. Now second, God takes pleasure in those who are adopted into Christ. Amazing grace, that's what we call it. I mean, why would God bring such a sinner's eye into his family? Why would He adopt me? Why would He allow Christ to die for me and to give me His righteousness? But every single believer shares in this divine love of complacency. See, this love of complacency is that which Jacob enjoyed, but not Esau. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated, the Scripture says. What is that love that God had for Jacob? This complacent love. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. This love is reserved for the redeemed, the elect, in whom God delights. Not because there's anything in them inherently lovely or delightful, But we are so united to Christ, the Father's beloved, that the love the Father has for the Son spills over onto us. 
God's love for us is pleasing and sweet to Himself and to us. So you do, do you see, the only reason God loves us in this manner, which is called electing love, unconditional love, the only reason why He loves us in this manner is because we're in Christ. Because we're united in Christ. And when God looks upon us, He doesn't see a sinner, does He? He sees Christ. And He loves Christ. And He lavishes love upon us because we are in Christ. We are united to Christ. Now, if we've experienced this love of God, it will be revealed in our love for others. We'll be able to do what Christ tells us here, to love your enemies. Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us. I read of a Christian counselor. A man came to see him who wanted to divorce his wife. And as to his reason... He even said, my wife isn't unfaithful. She hasn't left me or anything like that, but I just don't love her anymore. I mean, that is repeated time and time again when someone wants to divorce. I just don't love him anymore. I just don't love her anymore. Well, the counselor said, well, the Bible says, husbands, love your wife. So... You don't have an option. This is the command from the Almighty God. You have to start loving your wife. Well, the man's response, you don't get it, man. I don't even want to be around her. I don't want to live in the same house with her. I don't love her. At this point, the counselor said, Why don't you do this? Have a trial separation and move next door for a few weeks. Well, man, what? What good will that do? And the counselor responded, well, the Bible says love your neighbor. So if she's living next door to you, she's your neighbor. So why don't you just go ahead and move next door and show love to your neighbor? Well, of course, the man was totally exasperated with the counselor. And he said, you don't get it. It's not that I want to be near her. I can't stand the sight of her. I have nothing but enmity in my heart toward her. Oh, said the counselor. She's your enemy. The man affirmed it. And the counselor responded, well, the Bible says, love your enemies. The man probably did not come back next week for counseling. That's sad, though. I mean, commanded three times to love. Thinking that love was some kind of feeling. No, love to be an action. And as Christians, you have no excuse. I have no excuse. We must love. We are commanded to act lovely toward others. We've seen that Jesus' statement is very unusual according to this world. It's very difficult to love your enemy, but He explains to us how we are to love them. 
It has to do with how we behave toward those who are our enemies. No doubt, every one of us in this room has an enemy. Now, some might not recognize it. I was asking my granddaughter. I said, do you have any enemies? She sat there and she began to say, well, I don't know, Papa. I'm glad I'm not her enemy. But anyway, she, I mean, we might not even know it. But especially as Christians, we must realize and we must learn how to deal with those who are classified as our enemies. See, Jesus says, do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Now, this is what it means to love your enemy. But what does the flesh want to do? It wants to hate. It wants to curse back. Oh, pastor, I I would never do that. You wouldn't? I mean, not even if you were going up I-55 and someone cut you off and they waved a vile hand gesture at you as if it was your fault. What's the first thing that you want to do back? Blow a kiss? I don't think so. See, if someone seeks to harm you, you don't want to be good to them. Matter of fact, you may think, if they are up to no good, why should I do anything good for them? Now, I'm not indicating that we are to be pacifists. Um, I didn't mention that last week. It also goes for last week's sermon. I'm not saying you're just to lay there and let everybody run over you. Matter of fact, if you think about it, remember when Jesus was carried from one judge to the next judge and he was slapped? Did Jesus turn the other cheek? He asked, what have I done? Have I said something wrong? In other words, he was implying, what sin have I committed to where you could slap me? And we'll get a little bit more into that next week because remember I said there are some exceptions, so we'll talk about them exceptions. See, I'm enticing you to be back next week. But Jesus calls us to be like Him. To display benevolent love to everyone so that we might win them to Christ. That's our goal. That's our desire. We want our enemies to become Christians. Right? I hope that's right. I mean, if they're, if they're Christians, they're not going to be our enemies anymore. We're not going to have a problem with them, right? Again, I emphasize that only by the supernatural power that comes from the Holy Spirit living in you, that comes from God's grace, will we be enabled to do this. Being in Christ enables us to be like Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you will not be like Christ. You will not be able to deny self. You will not be able to love your enemies as exhorted by Christ. So if you're not in Christ, I plead with you, I exhort you to flee to Christ today so that you might be able to love in this manner that Christ has commanded you to love. So that you might be in Christ. So that you might be delighted by the Father. And that you might be able to delight in the Father. And commune with the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, because of grace. 
May we understand these truths and realize that we have a higher calling. You and I have a higher calling. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. Why why have we not had a single divorce in this church, in the life of our church? It's because I believe you realize as well as I realize we have a higher calling to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And the wife has a higher calling to submit to Christ. And when you have that understanding and realize that you have a higher calling, then you're able to persevere together as a husband and wife. And may God give us the strength and supernatural power to be able to persevere together in the faith and live for Him. Let us pray. Father, we realize the difficulty of this passage. We realize that we cannot do what Christ commands us to do apart from Christ, apart from His Spirit living in us, apart from that supernatural power that comes from Him and Him alone. We know that You must put the desire there. So we pray, Father, that if we are Your children, that we would display this love that You tell us to display to even our enemies. Well, we also pray, Father, that we would understand this love that you have for us, this complacency, this delight that you have in us because we are in Christ. How amazing that is, Father. And how we can remember it even as we come to the table this day, knowing what he has done for us, knowing that he paid our penalty that we could not pay and that He gave us the righteousness that we could not earn. Cause us to remember as we come this morning and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Work in the lives of those, Father, who are not in Christ. Bring conviction into their soul. Cause them to see that self rules their life and that self is an idol that must be put to death. Bring conviction and repentance and profession of faith. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and for His sake and glory. Amen.